Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Last week, Joe Biden mandated that businesses with more than 100 employees needed to force every worker, every worker to be vaccinated or face weekly testing. It's estimated this will impact roughly 180 million people or almost two thirds of the country's workforce. Uh, Setting aside his dictatorial and offensive tone, does Joe Biden really have the power to do this? Or is it that under the guise of, quote, keeping us safe, Federal, state, and local governments have trampled our constitutional law with draconian regulations and emergency orders with arbitrary executive decrees. This points us towards even a bigger problem, which is the enormous and growing administrative state and its threat to every American's constitutional freedoms. With me to explain these threats are Philip Hamburger, who's the founder of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, a scholar of constitutional law whose contributions are unrivaled uh, by any U.S. legal scholar in driving the national debate on the First Amendment, uh, government administrative power, and the separation of church and state. Bill, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Also joining me is uh, our favorite returning guest, Janine Eunice, who was on with Todd's Wiki uh, last month. Uh, She's litigation counsel for the new Civil Liberties Alliance, and she's a former public defender and after seeing governments throughout the nation violate human rights and civil liberties in an ostensible effort to mitigate the virus, uh, she's now joined the fight against lockdowns and related policies. Janine, welcome again. Thank you so much for having me back. Look forward to hearing you some more. So, Philip, um, what 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 is the new Civil Liberties Alliance? <laughs> we what are we? We're we're not the ACLU. Uh, we actually defend civil liberties, uh, <laughs> but uh, we more seriously, uh, we're a response to the administrative state. A number of years ago, I realized that the administrative state, uh, which is the antithesis of our constitutional mode of government, uh, is the greatest threat to civil liberties in our era. We've had different sorts of threats to civil liberties in the past, but the current threat is centrally in the administrative state. And so it seemed necessary to push back against that. Others weren't doing it. And so I formed what was then just a tiny group. We're now actually 20 people and have a significant impact. Uh, We formed a litigation group to do pro bono litigation to fight the administrative state. And I must say, um, one of our uh, great pleasures this summer was to have uh, Janine join us. She's wonderful, and so thank you. Oh, I want to take this opportunity to say thank you, Janine, <laughs> not only join your show, but joining the NCLA. Oh, well, so, Janine, you. You, you were up in New York City defending criminals? Yes. <laughs> I was an appellate public defender for quite some time. So how did yeah. you, wh- what was the light that went off that said, look, we've got to protect everybody's civil liberties? Well, it was really the COVID stuff. Um, I was really shocked by the uh, governmental responses across the nation, well, really across the world, um, and the public's acceptance of it. And I thought, you know, something's really wrong here, that people think it's okay for the government to say, you can't leave your home, you can't see your family, you can't go to church. Um, 
And uh, so I started to become very active and fighting a lockdown policies. And I became involved with a group called AIER. And they, some people there actually knew about NCLA. Um, I was sort of doing that during the night. And that's American Enterprise Institute? That's no, up, that's, that's the American Institute for Economic Research, where the Great in, Barrington up Declaration Up in Massachusetts, was. yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. Um, and I was, so I was doing my day job, and then doing my uh, night job was fighting lockdowns. And then I was like, this is too much. I have to combine those two things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. So, Philip, you went, to, you went to Princeton and Yale Law School. I don't really think of those as bastions of libertarian uh, <laughs> No, it's perfect. Yeah. Okay, you, you escaped. <laughs> He's also currently a professor at Columbia, so. <laughs> Again, greater imperfection. <laughs> so, so, uh, so l l let's start with, with Biden, and then I really do want to get in, into the administrative state, first by defining it, and then understanding what we can do about it. So did Biden, was, people say he, he exercised his authority under OSHA. Is what he's doing constitutional? Is what OSHA is doing constitutional? I mean, what is it that he tells every American uh, that you have to do this or that? Well, uh, it, there are layers to the problem. It's not just one. Uh, first of all, at a statutory level, it's by no means clear that there is governmental authority uh, to dictate to employers with more than 100 employees that they have to have their employees vaccinated. In fact, the statutory authorization for this is rather dubious. It looks not just like regulating the workplace, but actually regulating individuals in their everyday lives, which is not what OSHA is about. But beyond that, there are constitutional problems. Uh, this is an administrative edict uh, that's being proposed, one that is not, it's not a rule adopted by Congress, elected by all of us. It's just some unelected person at the dictate of the president telling us what to do. That sounds awfully like Prussia, not the United States. Well, the, I mean, Janine, you're, you're handling litigation on behalf. What is the lawsuit that you are, uh, you're filing? I'm currently uh, filing a lawsuit against Michigan State University. There's actually going to be a hearing next week uh, in Michigan on that, on the preliminary injunction there. Um, so that's a vaccine mandate for employees. And our uh, plaintiff uh, doesn't want to get the vaccine. She had COVID. She has natural immunity, very similar to the Zwicky case. Um, so that's a little different. And now that Biden's mandate has come down, I don't know if the university is going to try to claim um, that they have to do this uh, so that it, things could, the analysis could shift a little bit. But um, I think it's an important point to make um, in addition to what Philip was saying that, you know, this is sort of the government using private businesses to do what it can't, which we've seen a lot throughout this pandemic. And it's really problematic. Uh, like the, the Biden knows he can't make individuals go out and get the vaccine. But he's using uh, private companies as sort of an instrument of the government. Um, and it's, yeah. It, it, it's really, in some ways, even more dangerous than ordinary administrative power. They're using administrative edicts and also conditions on federal spending to draw private institutions into controlling us so that there's a sort of uniformity, connectedness, and alignment of government and large corporations and the universities all imposing the same policy. And in that sense, government and society get melded along government lines. So this is profoundly worrisome. Well, the problem I have, not, not problem I have, problem I think we have, is that you look at the poll numbers from this, and something like 60, 58% of people polled, now I, we don't know who's doing the polling, what the question was, said they thought Biden was doing the right thing. Well, it depends how the question's asked, I suppose. 
Um, if when asked, is it worth giving up on the Constitution, your constitutional rights, and your and your privilege, your right to elect, you know, one's rep the people who make your laws? I don't know if the result if the result of the poll would come out the same way. But yeah. it is true, many Americans aren't fully attached to the Constitution in the way that perhaps they should be. Well, also, I always imagine Jesse Waters. You know, Jesse, you don't watch TV. But <laughs> no. <laughs> he's on Fox, and he made his reputation working for Bill um, O'Reilly, sending out to interview people on the street and ask them questions about what they thought. And it turned out they didn't know very much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> perhaps especially yeah. in colleges. So. <laughs> well, and I think that's one of the problems here is that the public is just very accepting of these measures. I'm not sure that the president would be responding this way if he didn't think that he could get away with it. And it's the same thing that we've seen throughout the pandemic. And I think the courts are also extremely reluctant to um, question what the government is doing in these situations. And we're, you know, we've had, we've seen some bad outcomes with the vaccine mandate cases so far. Uh, hopefully that'll change. But what, One of the dangers is that throughout history, emergencies are used to justify extraordinary power, yeah. unlawful power. Uh, this was the nature of absolutism. It was based on the sense of, sort of continuing emergencies. Um, and uh, this is the current ploy, right? We have to preserve this emergency so we can control people. That's quite frightening. And it just seems to me uh, it leads to a distortion of science, too, because in order to maintain the sense of necessity that justifies imposing all these controls through unlawful mechanisms, you have to concoct the story of an emergency. And in fact, although COVID is very serious, it is not, an, you know, it doesn't mean we have to throw away our constitutional rights our, and our self-government. And there's a real danger that the courts just defer to the government in times of emergency. It's, well, it's well, I think I think we. I, I hope you're successful in bringing this to some sort of. Is, is this the kind of case that could get to the Supreme Court? I mean, do, your your case in Michigan, maybe not. I mean, how can you? Is this? Are you ginning up a lawsuit against the President of the United well, States? We don't. We, we don't need to get to I'm, the Supreme I'm in Court favor, to win. I'll, if you want, correct. No, it's quite help. okay. Uh, so first of all, the Supreme Court these days is a little skittish, and perhaps because of threats of court backing. So one doesn't necessarily need to get the Supreme Court or want to get there. One wants to prevail in ways that are substantive and lasting. And that can be done in circuit courts. Uh, that can be done in a host of different ways. So uh, I, in fact, one of the reasons the NCLA was started was too many people just wanted to get amicus briefs in the, in the Supreme Court for fundraising purposes. An amicus purposes. brief is? Uh, a friend of the court. To, okay. So that one, there might be one lawyer for one client and 60 people crowd in and say, we participated by filing amicus briefs. Yeah. Some are very useful, some are not. But the point is that too many organizations were concerned about getting to the Supreme Court without worrying about what's actually being accomplished. So our goal is to get things done in an effective strategic way. And, there, and these lawsuits are precisely about that. So, what, tell me about the, uh, your colleagues. How many? Who are the? Who is the team that's fighting this fight? The vaccines. Yeah. Well, and, and, and AC, I keep. You know, I'm a NCL. basketball guy. I keep thinking. Okay, it's NCL <laughs> at you. <laughs> we should have a no, basketball no. team in our, in our organization. That's you right. You do. I'll help. Uh, I'll <laughs> help you. coach. Anyway, so tell us about the team. Well, we have a, about uh, is it ten or eleven lawyers currently, and about ten support support staff. Uh, and that includes, and the support staff includes not only conventional communications, but engagement with the public. If I could just mention one example of that, our, our director of engagement, Clegg Ivey, who's a U of C law grad, by the way, um, he actually knows his law, went up to Cornell 
with, uh, and arranged to have a young man dressed as a kangaroo. And so students <laughs> arrived, he, he started urging them to submit to the kangaroo court. Um, and of course, students loved this, and whenever they saw him on campus would shout, guilty, guilty. Uh, so this was against Title IX to make vivid to parents and students the threat there. And so we want to act in unconventional ways, sensible unconventional ways, to draw people's attention to the problem. As for our lawyers, uh, they range from relatively new lawyers to highly experienced ones. Uh, we have the full range, as one would at any law firm. And I like to think they're all brilliant, uh, hardworking, and dedicated, which I think is true. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Philip Hamburg and Jeannie Yunus, and uh, we're talking about the, uh, um, the uh, NCLA, National Civil, <laughs> New Civil Liberties Alliance, and all it's doing to protect our freedoms. Uh, the question also comes up, what right do individuals have if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated? It, it, you know, you've... He's mandating employers, but if you're if you if you're an unvaccinated employee, and you you say I don't want to get vaccinated, your employer can then fire you. Well, it's a little bit complicated. I mean, if it's a private employer and the private employer was doing without this without government uh, coercion or government order, um, that would be a different analysis. But when it's the government um, making the you know making the edict, then constitutional rights kick in and that's a different situation. So MSU like GMU is a state is a public university and so it's subject to has to, you know, abide by the constitutional requirements. And that's why we're we're bringing these cases against public universities and not private. Well, ones. you won your case in in GMU is George Mason University, Todd's a wiki professor there who'd been had the had the virus and and ended up with immunities and Yeah. Was, well, we reached a resolution that was satisfactory to everybody involved. If I, if, I could, if I could restate that ever so slightly, um, they were so scared when, when Janine turned up that they, they gave in before we could actually litigate it. <laughs> they just ran away. Well, how much does this stand up to the sunlight of uh, publicity? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of uh, really kind of egregious behavior ordering people around. And if you, but if you, if you shine a light on it, they, they tend to back down. That's what happened with GMU. Yeah, MSU is not backing down in the same way. And the what the tactic that all of these universities appear to be taking is to say that natural immunity doesn't exist. Um, because, you know, the natural Wait. immunity argument is huge. It affects millions, tens of millions of Americans um, would be exempt from these mandates if natural immunity was recognized. Uh, and uh, But they're sort of trying to pretend it doesn't exist at all. Um, Which is kind of funny because, of course, the whole idea of herd immunity is based on past experiences with natural immunity. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a funny disconnect here. So the administrative state, all this power exerted not through one's representatives, but by ag unelected agencies and bureaucrats, is based on a theory of expertise. They have knowledge. Right. Their knowledge is solid. We should respect that and follow it. And the courts, too, even if it's at the expense of our rights. Now, this is odd because solid knowledge, things which are certain, that means old science. Real science... Uh, the cutting edge of science is all about questions, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got into all of this really in defense of science against federal regulations that are actually killing people. And so I, I've spent a lot of time worrying about this. Their claim of expertise is actually repudiation of cutting edge, edge science. And here it's actually anti-scientific because, of course, natural immunity is a real thing. 
We may not know enough about it, but we don't know enough about the, the immunity from vaccines either. And it's a reminder that the agencies actually don't know enough to be presuming to rise above law and know more than the legislature. Let's, yeah. let's do a history lesson. You, you're a professor, you were a professor of history for a mm. while. Yeah, professor of law, but I did a lot of history, that's okay, right. Okay, well, power based on expertise. This was the Woodrow Wilson idea. You got it from the Germans. I'm, I'm simplifying that's true. this, but he, wanted, he thought that the Constitution was wholly inadequate and this idea of separation of power and, and uh, the, the, you know, a, a, a Congress, a courts, the, the president, they lack the capacity, the, the capability of, of experts. Mm -hmm. And he was a former Princeton president. <laughs> yes. So you bear some responsibility. <laughs> I'll, guilty as charged. I went um, there. And he came in with a roaring, and all the progressives thought the experts mm -hmm. ought to be in charge of government, and the democratic process was right. inadequate to solve the big issues. And so the rule by experts really got started in the 20s. And then this down through the years, what happened was the administrative state, which we now call it, they kept delegating more and more power to these, these government agencies. And Congress is the biggest culprit there. They right. kept delegating this, that, and the other. And now all of a sudden we end up with this incredible uh, bureaucracy. is really too benign a word. This yeah, sort right. of, uh, so let me give you a thing. less sanitary account of that. Sanitary. A less sanitary account of it, the real account of it. Which I is don't want san I want the real account. <laughs> right. You'll have, you'll have to have a shower afterwards. It's so disgusting. So the people who demanded rule by experts, people like Woodrow Wilson, um, they were not just academics. They were members of a class. I call it, the, it's not a Marxist-defined class in economic terms. It's a class defined by knowledge. People like well, all of us, you know, went to have academic knowledge, went to school and so forth. And... As the elites. Yes, it's, an, it's a knowledge elite rather than a moneyed elite. And the knowledge elite viewed with some disgust the, uh, how should I put it, the non-Anglo-Saxon um, immigrants. They felt disgust towards lower-class Germans, towards Irishmen, towards blacks. And so even Italians to Italians and... Yeah, you know, Italians oh. too, that's right. And so at the same time that constitutionally they were trying to open up voting rights, they were trying to take legislative power out of the hands of the elected officials, the, the, the legislators. And Woodrow Wilson's quite candid about this in 1887. He says, look, we progressives have great difficulty persuading the masses, the unwashed masses, to adopt our, our views. And he says, I'm particularly worried about, and this is a quote, not my language, he talks about the Irishmen, Germans, and Negroes. That's a quote and how they cannot really be trusted. With well, he was a notorious racist. He was. But this is the origins of the administrative state. It has utterly racist beginnings. And that's not to say that the current administrative state is racist, but it has racist origins, and it's still discriminatory in the sense that it takes legislative power and puts it in the hands of a homogenized, educated elite, and thereby takes legislative power further away from a diverse majority. Well, those are also the roots of Planned Parenthood. Don't want to get too far <laughs> away from my own. Well, field. you were doing so well. We can, we can get into that too, but let's we'll keep this one yes, out of eugenics. that. I mean, based by the way, in New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. What what <laughs> what we're seeing with this, I think, is profoundly anti-scientific. It's a lot that you know we don't even know how these policies are developed. The universities usually won't tell us, um, and they'll just refer to some CDC guidance, which doesn't even appear to be often based on research. Um, 
And, you know, I, I was speaking to Jay Bhattacharya recently, one of the great Barrington um, Declaration co-authors. He's he, at Stanford. One of the best epidemiologists in the world. And he was saying, you know, we don't, you, there are a lot of things we don't know about these vaccines. They're new. Um, we don't know how effective they are. You know, safety, they appear to be safe, but you, by, you know, it's just a syllogism that you can't know the long-term effects of something that hasn't been around long-term. Um, and we, you know, we don't know how long they last. And there should be a robust debate going on about it. But instead, what's happening is silencing and censorship, as you know, we know uh, firsthand. Um, mm -hmm. And this is exactly the opposite of what the scientific right. process is supposed to be about. So these people who say they're following the science, Anthony Fauci, right. et cetera, are doing exactly the opposite. Right. Mop rule, uh, censoriousness, even um, undue acceptance of majority views are incompatible with scientific knowledge, as Galileo could tell us if you were sitting here. And the danger is we're moving towards a situation in which if someone holds a deviant point of view on science, somehow they're a threat to the nation. It, and part of this comes, I think, because we've, we've merged, science has become so much a government activity that policy and science merge. And so once the policy is decided, if the science goes another direction, it becomes, you know, well, not just you, a sense, you, you but try, something try, try being a client scientist who doesn't agree with the right. uh, consensus. Yeah. Exactly. You can't get a job. That's right. Yeah. You can't get funded. You can't get research money. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it really is shut it. I mean, it's really scary. It's happened in environment now. It's happening with uh, with viruses. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I heard that NCLA initially thought of using the word Galileo as the, That's because right. they wanted to be. <laughs> I, at, for, against institutional review boards, which was the initial uh, problem that got me into all of this, uh -huh. I, I thought of starting the Galileo Society, but then it merged into something That's a little uh -huh. bigger. That's right. So, so I want to stick with the anti-science piece, but I also want to get back into the mechanisms through which this anti-science is being enforced. and. You know, if you step back and look at the federal government, then there are all these agencies. There's the EPA, there's labor, there's uh, commerce, there's Department of Agriculture, there's the SEC, there's Justice, all these. I won't go the whole list, but you know, I ran a public company, and it came to be clear to me that when you're regulated by the SEC and you get into dispute with them, it's not like you go to a, an independent third-party judge and litigate this. It's you've got the SEC really becomes the uh, judge, jury, and executioner, and there's really no other recourse, or at least there wasn't right. then. So that's, right. that's true in all the agencies, isn't it? Am it's I, true am I in almost, almost all of them, that's right. So explain, explain how the administrative state administers its law and how it's always inside the, the agency that's... Uh, right, so normally Congress passes a statute saying do, don't do this or do that. Nowadays, Congress says, some agency, SEC, you take care of it, and then the SEC will adopt a rule uh, which says don't do this or that, and they're not elected and utterly unaccountable to the public. If they're not satisfied with the rule, then what they'll also do is add another rule interpreting it, for which they don't really have statutory authority. And then if they're not satisfied with that, They'll say, well, let me give you some guidance as to what our rule really means. This is our interpretation of it. Of course, it's not binding, but woe betide someone who violates that interpretation. Mm -hmm. And the courts will defer to the interpretations of the agency. So there are layers of administrative edicts, rules, interpretive rules, guidance, and then sometimes just a wink and a nod from an agency, and you have to listen to what they say. And if you violate any of these things, then they'll charge you in their own in-house courts, not real courts 
but as one of an ALJ, an administrative law judge, who's utterly biased in favor of the agency because even if they were utterly pure as individuals, and many of them are, uh, their decision, judicial decisions are reviewable by the commission, the SEC commission or other agency head. So if the agency doesn't like the adjudication by the little petty judge, the inquisitorial judge, they'll just change it. So both on the lawmaking and the adjudication, you're toast. Well, and the thing that makes this political and important and vital is if you look at how the federal agency, if you, if you look at, at, at how people vote, probably 80, probably 90% voted for not Donald Trump. And so there is a, they did also voted not uh, uh, George Bush. I mean, it's a very left oriented uh, federal bureaucracy we have. Mm -hmm. So when they sit and they look at these laws that mm -hmm. they're creating and also deciding what's fair, what's not fair, they've got a real bias. I confess, um, so at the NCLA, uh, we have a policy. You can of, give me the unsanitized version. No, I, I, I want to actually be very straight on this. We do not want to be harsh against any of the people we disagree with. We want to give them a great big hug and persuade them to do what's right. Okay, I'll be uh, It's like, it's like the, 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 Christ, the Christian motto, um, hate the sin, love the sinner. And indeed, most of these people <laughs> are highly principled. They're just following the wrong principles. Okay. And they're exerting power, which they shouldn't have. And so we want to fight those types of power without any animus towards any individual, which is not to say some of them don't misbehave, but we're, far, we're focusing on types of, we don't want to get distracted by personal politics. We, not political at all, we just aim at unlawful behavior. So Which is plenty to aim against, believe me. We don't need more to fight. Well, we're, <laughs> you, you're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Philip Hamburger and Janine Yunus, and I'm getting a lesson from uh, um, Philip on how not to irritate your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I should listen to that, we, too. We, we, hate, <laughs> you hate the sin, but not the sinner. They, 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 they're, they're nervous enough already, um, which is fine. Well, that's one of the rules of management, though, interestingly. You don't, you know, I ran a lot of different things, and it's like you don't say to the person, you're a jerk. You say, no, you're behaving like a jerk. You're not really. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I've actually proposed... So don't behave that way. <laughs> I, I propose that all federal bureaucrats have their pay doubled on the condition that they not act unlawfully. No one's accepted this. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, what should the agencies have you, have you worked with so far? Is this, are you still in the new, uh, new, new, um, new, new litigator category? Yeah, I'm in the new litigator cate category. I haven't... Uh... So what are some examples of the agencies where you've been... Right. I was going to say, Janine has a full cup of COVID in front of her. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's the issue of the there day. There are a lot of vaccine yeah. mandates. Yeah. Um, well, here, I'll give you an example. The Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, we have argued uh, for several years that their ALJs, their internal in-house uh, tribunals, are unconstitutional. ALJ stands uh, for... Administrative Law Judge. Okay. Yeah, we all think in acronyms. It's terrible. Uh, and so they shouldn't proceed against you in front of their own in-house biased judge, so-called judges, but in front of a real judge with a jury in a federal court with all the rules of procedure. We've gone so far in that litigation, uh, led mostly by Peggy Little, uh, one of our, our, our fine lawyers, that as a result, they're now backing away from using their own in-house lawyers. They only have 16 cases in front of their uh, ALJs in their internal courts at the moment and they're shifting to the district, going to real district courts, which is great. 
But having chased them out of their internal tribunals, we're now fighting them in the district courts. And in Spartan Securities versus SEC this summer, another of our lawyers, Caleb Krakenberg, uh, defended Spartan Securities and won uh, and the court, and sorry, the jury found them innocent on 13 out of 14 counts. Now, this is in part because the SEC wants to enforce mere guidance, its interpretation, as if it were law. And of mm -hmm. course, the judge, being a real judge, rejected this. And uh, so Caleb got, uh, just trounced the SEC in this case. That means they can't fight in-house. They try to on unconstitutional procedures in a real court, and they get bloodied. Let's see what they do next. Uh, and so this is just an example of how it's like chasing a, ma a, a, a mouse. You chase him out of his home, goes into, into the public sphere, gets crushed. And they need to find a lawful way to act. They can't act unlawfully anymore. Well, one of the things that I didn't understand until I really got into this administrative state is that Congress, when they write these laws, let's say the $3.5 trillion monstrosity that Nancy's got cooked up for us, you read through it, it doesn't really say this, this, or this. It says we're going to give this to this agency or this, that other thing, this mm -hmm. other agency. That way they've got plausible deniability. Right. So you vote for something and then somebody comes back and one of their constituents says the law you just voted for is really crushing me. And you say, oh, well, that's not the law I passed. It's the way it's been interpreted by this agency. Is that is that yes. rough, uh, a right. roughly you, accurate view of yes, what's going on? Yes, it infantilizes Congress. There's the actual. Again? It infantilizes Congress because okay. the power, all, all the bad stuff can be done elsewhere and they can just say, oh, we're fixing a problem. We're passing a statute with no content. That's right. The guidance issue also has come into play in the uh, vaccine mandate cases because a lot of these um, mandates say that they're relying on the CDC guidance. And then, so you can't really challenge the guidance because it's not a law. But then the, you know, the university acts as though it's the final word. So they put us in this bind where, you know, we can't really bring a lawsuit against the CDC and say they're not relying on the science, even though I think that's actually the case. Um, but at the same time, everybody thinks that we should be taking their word for what they're saying. So that's really a problem. So you were a public defender mm -hmm. defending individuals. What if I come to you as somebody that's unvaccinated and said, look, my lawyer's being tough and they've just fired me? What is that a case you all would take? Well, it depends on the details. <laughs> okay. I mean, just to yeah. give you a sense of scale. Spoken can, like a true, yeah, well, right. <laughs> a well-trained lawyer. What a good case here. We're okay. getting, I would say, hundred. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't keep track anymore. My right. inbox is. I have to forward everything to the paralegal. We, we have so you're getting inundated with requests yeah, to help yeah. people. We can't, yeah. we can't handle them all. And, and sadly, and this, this is the sad part of all this. From the very beginning, people come to you with their problems, and people are in tears sometimes. And you cannot say yes to all of them. Yeah. Because one cannot defend every individual. Our goal, and I think it's the right goal, is to fight against the types of power so that in future people, the government cannot do this to us. One can defend far more than just one's clients if one acts strategically. So we take the cases which will defend not just our client, but all of Set the Set a precedent yeah. and, That's and right. establish a rule for everybody else that follows. Right. Exactly. Yeah. An example of something like that? Um, an example of that. So, for example, uh, we, uh, the, the SEC is an example of that. Uh, there are types of power that you don't get in Schoolhouse Rock. For example, Congress delegates rulemaking power to agencies, right? 
So we're and that's defended, oddly enough, under a doctrine called the non-delegation doctrine, which actually means the opposite of what it says, um, which it, it actually permits delegation of legislative power to agencies mm -hmm. by some corrupt mode of re reasoning. So we fought this, for example, in the Gundy case, I think it was the summer of 2018. And I, did we get about four votes? We, om we, we almost got the Supreme Court in an amicus brief, and Gorsuch wrote an opinion adopting our language in which he, didn't say, in which he said, this isn't really a problem of delegation. It's a pro actually, we've divested, Congress has divested itself of its power, and that's the Constitution's language, vesting. So we're persuading the Supreme Court increasingly, especially Gorsuch and, and Clarence Thomas, and, some, and, I think, and I think Alito, to reconsider their doctrines. The same is true with deference doctrines. Deference is a doctrine of judicial deference to agency interpretations of their laws. I've heard about the, the Chevron. Right, exactly. We have to talk about Chevron. <laughs> Chevron. Chevron always comes up. Right. What an, explain Chevron. Right. So, let, the, In three pages or less. Yeah, three pages <laughs> or less. There are more articles written on Chevron than I can count, thousands of them, and they're all tedious, uh, including my own probably. Uh, the, the, key, the key point is that... Uh, Ordinarily, Congress will say, we, ex we are expressly authorizing you to make a rule. And, but sometimes the agency wants more power than that. So they say, well, we don't have express authorization, but the statute's ambiguous. And where it's ambiguous, we can fill in the gaps. We can make law in the gaps. And the, and the courts say, we'll defer to that. And in a case called Chevron, they established that as a clear rule. We'll defer to what the agency says is its interpretation. Now, the awkwardness with this is that Suppose you're being uh, challenged by the government in an, agency, in an agency tribunal or a court, uh, and the agency says, well, this is our interpretation, and the courts defer to it. That means they're being biased. The court's being biased against the defendant in favor of the government, and that violates due process of law. So this is all utterly unconstitutional, and we want to fight these types of power as well as defend individuals. So is this something the current Supreme Court would likely overturn, or is this a Roberts court that doesn't want to do anything controversial? Right. I don't, I don't like to get into the personalities of judges. That's I'll right. You've got to deal with them. I don't right. okay. so, so, no, It's also just a matter of courtesy. It's not my style. I, I do think um, they will eventually get to it, and in the meantime, we can go after it in lower courts. It doesn't really matter whether the Supreme Court deals with it immediately or later. They want to deal with it later. That's okay. We'll find other ways. Of getting to it, we're, we're quite we're, we're like commandos. You, I, I actually read military history to inspire myself. You see an obstacle, if you can't get around it, they don't want to decide it. You go to another court. We we were mobile, and so I'm just not worried. Yes, the Supreme Court should decide this, but if they don't, we'll find another way. Mm -hmm. Are you defending mainly individuals or mainly companies? Both. Both. Lots of individuals as well as companies. Um, the most, you know, the great defense amongst liberals of the administrative state was it only really affects corporations. Don't worry, they're evil. <laughs> um, and the reality, though, is that in the past twenty years, administrative law actually increasingly touches individuals. And this is COVID, right? Yeah. COVID seizes people, individuals, and tears their lives apart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the administrative state does this to you. And it's, so I say COVID or the administrative state does this to you, I think. In any case, the administrative state sees upon individuals and that gets people's attention. You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Philip Hamburger and Janine Yunus of the uh, new Civil Liberties Alliance. And now I'm gonna ask the, the big question, which is 
How long is this uh, COVID thing going to last? How long are we going to be locked down? How what, forever? What can, as long as we, possible. What can we do about it? I mean, it's you know the uh, you know I'm a CEO type. I like to think there's a line of action, and yet it seems like we we had COVID, then we had the Delta, and then we had there's bound to be something new coming along, some new reason to keep us uh, locked down. What do you? How does? How do we? How do we? How do we knuckle this back? Well, that's why I can't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I mean, what we're seeing is it's really incredible. I mean, in a place like this is just one example of many, many. But you know, DC reinstated an indoor mask mandate. Why? I mean, uh, the Delta variant. Were there increased hospitalizations and deaths? No, they're at around zero. They've been at around zero. But um, you know, it's it's a, in my opinion, a fake problem. We're implementing a fake solution. Everybody knows that masks, well, everybody who's actually looked at the science knows that masks We're about to get banned by YouTube. I know, sorry. I should, <laughs> I should stop with my mask. Stop rant. watching, stop watching. <laughs> masks, masks don't work. <laughs> the, I mean, I said it, you didn't have to. <laughs> the governments are, you know, implementing these measures in response to something that's not really a problem. I'm not saying that Delta isn't a problem anywhere, but in most parts of the country, it's really, you know, it's, there are some breakthrough cases and people have a cold. Right. The most telling thing about the current uh, executive orders and the like uh, is that they're utterly undifferentiated. They try to lump as many people as possible yeah. into one group. And that's a sign that this has nothing to do with science and more to do with politics. politics. And, you know, if it's not this emergency, it'll be another. What we really need is, uh, is to have judges realize they should, should not respond to excited claims of emergency or necessity. We have a whole series of doctrines, um, you know, such as the compelling government interest test. You have a right, but we trumped if there's a compelling government interest test. And of course, in an emergency, it's always compelling, right? So these, we have doctrines that invite this sort of behavior. So the real fault lies in the courts. Once they abandon their doctrines that encourage these sort of misstatements about emergency, it will all calm down. And they're not requiring any showing of what an emergency is. All these governors and mayors, it's, they're just saying it's an emergency. Um, I mean, the Delta variant existing is not necessarily an emergency if it's only causing, you know, flu or cold-like uh, results. Well, it's, uh, yeah, but we're, we're, we're has, uh, this may be outside our topic here, but has social media made this, made all these civil liberties issues worse or better? Who knows? Yeah. Okay. I can argue both sides of that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it, it's all it very It just seems worse. like any little thing gets right. magnified. And it, this got... ties into the structure of administrative power. If you think what administrative power is, it's a cascade of evasions of law. You evade constitutional governance to have rules. You evade rulemaking by having informal rulemaking. You evade informal rulemaking by going to guidance. You evade guidance through third-party boycotts like Operation Chokepoint. It's like a cascade towards ever greater lawlessness, a sort of degradation of law. And at various ways along that, you have to justify it. And emergencies, expertise, uh, false claims about science, these are all the justifications that are made for abandoning law and this cascade towards just mere power. And what we have to do is repair all of that to remind the judges they're there to follow law, not the latest hysteria, and nor ideas about emergency power that I associate actually with continental Europe, not the United States. In response, with respect to the social media thing, I mean, I, I 
think there's a case to be made that a lot of a lot of the expert voices that were elevated were actually just people who are Twitter personalities, like the most popular epidemiologists on Twitter and not actually the most qualified scientists. I read an article that, I, that sort of convinced me of that. So, but on the other hand, I'm very active on Twitter and like I have a huge following of people who pay attention to what I say about this. So I think I've, yeah. you know, probably- What's had, your handle? It's actually Lefty Lockdowns One, which is- <laughs> Lefty was, Lockdowns I One? I didn't know what I was doing when I created the Twitter account last year because I didn't understand Twitter. So it was Lefty Lockdown Skeptic, but then it cut it off. So it sounds like I'm pro-lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> So you're going to do lefty lockdown skeptic and it ended up being interpreted as yeah. lefty lockdown. Yeah. Long. And then I've tried to change it, but I have a lot of followers now. I'm worried if I change the handle, something will go awry and I'll lose <laughs> Gotta the live with it. Yeah. <laughs> So I always have to explain. <laughs> well, Twitter's pretty powerful. How do you develop yeah. a drumbeat? Also, you're probably tweeting a lot of things that Twitter doesn't like. Yeah, I get censored at some, you know, a reasonable amount. <laughs> Not a reason, an unreasonable amount, but a decent amount. <laughs> an unreasonable amount. amount. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's. I think I have twenty-five thousand followers right now, which is like not a ton, but it's a lot. It's so a lot. every time I say something, and then you know, a lot of people don't follow because they don't want to be associated with it. So if I look at a tweet, you know, that has, uh, I think I had one that has seven thousand likes. It actually had five hundred thousand views. So it's cr oh. It is the reach is quite what the tweets crazy. Say? Oh, I can't even re remember that one. It was good though. <laughs> so, so how do we how do we win this war against the administrative states? Clearly, it it seems very very tough. Um, what do we if you could if you could sort of enlist people in this cause? What would you? Why would you say let's get let's get involved with the NCLA? Well, I I think the key to all of it is simply telling the truth, yeah. candor. Uh, and I, I'm with Solzhenitsyn on this, and live not by lies. Just telling the truth goes a long way to making untruths fall apart. And that's true in a program such as this. That's why I wrote my book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? And it ends with a plea just for candor. Most of our legal doctrines are, they, they hide the truth. They're, they're like non-delegation doctrine really means the delegation doctrine. And so what we really need to do is just use accurate legal language, use accurate political language, just tell the truth. And this is what we do in litigating. When we write, write briefs to the Supreme Court, it's not a conventional brief. And we know that they're careful, these briefs are carefully read because what they do is they say, you're using this vocabulary. This is not the Constitution's vocabulary. Use the correct language. And once you use the correct language, you'll see the law correctly. And so the way we litigate is by asking the judges just to be truthful. And I think it goes a long way. Look, we've only been in existence for four years. And now it's an open, you know, five years ago, there was no question the administrative state was legitimate and in place and it wasn't going to move. Now it's all up for grabs. And even the SEC, which is one of the oldest and most reputable of agencies, can't even bring cases in its own unconstitutional internal tribunals. And it's losing in the district courts. We're making real progress. And so we just have to litigate steadfastly. Put another way, I sometimes like to tell people, you know, you give to politicians, but, you know, lawyers are more reliable. And, you know, because we stick to it. And in this case, we just like telling the truth. And I think it works. I think the thing that I'm interested in is how the administrative state would interact with some sort of civil service reform because it seems like you've got also a problem. Right. We're highly ossified. Everybody in the federal government's been there. Right. They're not going anywhere. Everybody's right. got protections. Are you, it's, it's, I would 
Let me answer you. It's central, right. So, so there's some ancillary questions here. Uh, one of them is qualified immunity. Another is the tenure of civil servants. Civil servants are protected from being fired. They're also protected by qualified immunity from being sued for damages. Uh, this was not the way it was in the past. Amplify that. Um, people so don't if know you, that. If you get a, if you get a job, right, if you get a job in the federal bureaucracy, it's essentially a job for life. Um, I know somebody uh, who worked in a federal office, a very distinguished federal office, and her office mate spent the whole day looking at pornography on a federal <laughs> computer. Did he get fired? No, he got he got advanced just to get him out of her office. Yeah, uh, transfer him to some other office. Probably some, he's yeah. moving up this way, I think. Um, and <laughs> you know, this is this is this is not the way mediocre mediocre. Meteoric rise through the ranks. Yes, a me a mediocrity had a meteoric <laughs> rise. That's right. Exactly. That's right. That's, right. So, uh, look, the president constitutionally um, has sh uh, should be able to hire and fire all these people. Yeah. Uh, he has the take care duty, the duty to take care of the laws of faithfully enforced. He has, so he has to be able to fire these people, and he can't. And this is this make, makes the bureaucracy an interest separate from the elected part of the government, which we saw under the Trump administration. You may like or dislike Trump, that's not really the point. It's just that we, should, we have a responsive representative system of government and it's threatened by the unelected portion. So this the tenure is profoundly dangerous and in many instances I think unconstitutional. So this really interrelates with the growth of profoundly. the administrative state and so we really need to think of those two things together. You know, people rail against Congress. Congress is obviously a problem in its own way, but Congress really isn't doing all the bad stuff most people right. complain about. It's right. It's, it's, it's you can think of it in terms of all the kids who get corrupted in college. They want to do good and make policy. I find this a very dangerous ambition. Uh, and where are they going to get employed? Most of them are not qualified really to teach in universities. So how would they be employed? And the answer is they need some sort of monopolized profession. Some of them become teachers and can't be fired, and others find cushy jobs in the, in the state and federal bureaucracies. Hmm. It's the ideal place for people who don't want to actually engage with life in full, full vigor. Well, somebody was saying that a lot of the people implementing the CDC or the local state uh, lockdown laws are sort of the the, the people who were hall monitors in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They weren't the movers and shakers. Right. It's puritanism yeah. without the morals. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's wrap. That's, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> We've got a lot of one-liners out of this. We do these things in clips, and we're going to have fun with clips. Last thought? Uh, we don't live in Russia. We're not in the Soviet Union. We're not in Solzhenitsyn's shoes. None of us have been threatened to go to the camps. People in my parents' generation who, who fought in World War II had a much tougher time. This is, this is nothing, so we shouldn't get afraid of it. What we should do, though, is stand up and put aside our petty fears and fight back lawfully, courteously, and vigorously. And that means telling the truth out of court and in court. And I think we, we then will prevail. We're already in four years, gotten very far. Yeah, this is incredible. This incredible achievement. And so you can be found uh, at, on the internet, obviously, at the uh, new Civil Liberties Alliance uh, website, where I think all the cases are. Your background yeah. is there. Do we have your Twitter handle on the website? No, actually. Okay. I think I did that on purpose because. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you so this much is, for having me. Thank you so much. We'll have yeah. you back. Yeah. And I'm, I'm encouraging everybody to support this. This is. 
this is kind of the unknown, un misunderstood problem, and I think if we get at the kind of things that this group is, is, is getting at, we're going to see a lot of progress in advance of, uh, of our liberty. Uh, so thanks for watching The Bill Walton Show. Uh, you can find us on thebillwaltonshow.com, on all the major podcast platforms, on Rumble, and, and hopefully uh, YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.